This is Off Key with Nate and Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to WHM Charleston 96.3 Ohm Radio, Charleston's first and only community-supported commercial-free radio station. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old exile? One moment a year, the world is united. At the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, no matter what hardships or triumphs the last 12 months have brought us, they will all conclude with the same warm glow as ones from the year before. With that pause, the world gathers with one voice and sings Old Lang Syne and mumbles through the rest of the lyrics. Despite soundtracking the only holiday celebrated by every person on earth and being the only song to get its own designated minute on the calendar, it's a stretch of cold Old Lang Syne pop music. While it's certainly popular, it is not exactly suitable for the radio. It predates the very concept of radio. Scottish poet Robert Burns wrote The Charming Toast in 1788, though he confessed that he was merely transcribing lyrics passed down from a reflective elder reminiscing on a song of his youth. Point is, the song is old. So old that nobody knows when it was written. And in that way, it's almost timeless. A song with no known beginning and endless reuse. As a stand-in for the most time-centric holiday of the year, it now belongs to eternity. Yet, on the rare occasions it has appeared on the pop charts, it could not be more instantly dated. Twice in the 1990s, Old Lang Syne rode onto the charts off the back of two of the decade's most divisive trends. First, in 1996, as the closing sample on A Macarena Christmas, Los Del Rio's shameless holiday-centric reworking of their dance craze sensation. Why, I don't know. A testament to the Macarena's bonanza popularity, this laughable cash grab climbed to respectable number 57 on the charts. So depending on how strictly you define your terms, this low-charting follow-up saved the Spanish duo from one-hit wonderdom. Three years later, another easy punchline took the wistful melody in an even schlockier direction and found much greater success. It's easy to forget now just how popular Kenny G was at his height. I have tried repeatedly to forget. Throughout the 1990s, the soprano saxman was a chart colossus, routinely setting new sales benchmarks. With more than 75 million album sales, Kenny G is handily the best-selling jazz artist of all time, a fact true jazz fans are loath to admit. Steely Dan's snooty perfectionist co-founder Walter Becker captured the public sentiment best when he joked that if Hitler, Mussolini, and Kenny G were in a room and he had only two bullets and a gun, he would shoot Kenny G twice just to make sure. A decade of cheap pop shots in Jay Leno's monologues may have turned Kenny G into a joke, but the facts are undeniable. For a moment there, he really was that big. 
1992, Mr. G's sixth album, Breathless, spent 11 weeks at number two, second only to Whitney Houston's Smash the Bodyguard soundtrack, a movie which he also cameoed in. Breathless alone sold 6 million copies in its first year and was later certified for sales of 12 million. Breathless sold more than best-selling records by Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, John Coltrane, and Dave Brubeck combined, which is just very sad. His music found interesting ways to weasel into the public consciousness. Going Home, a track from his 1990 album, Kenny G Live, became a standard in the People's Republic of China, routinely played over public address systems at the end of the Chinese workday. He even had time to crank out a Guinness World Record. Thanks to his self-taught circular breathing technique, he played one note for a bonkers 45 minutes. Can't imagine sitting there listening to him for 45 minutes with that same note. But as the decade came to a close, Mr. G struggled to stay relevant in a changing cultural landscape. He had one less gamut to get a hit. Success may have been fleeting, but it was a success all the same. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I don't think it was wrong. We did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages. I think it was a neat idea. Everyone on Sesame Street is always talking about love. Like a lot of jazz artists, Kenny G's cozy melodies worked comfortably as background filler for wintry celebrations. In 1999, he released a collection of Christmas and Hanukkah standards called Faith. The CD ends with an overly sentimental take on Old Lang Syne. When the instrumental initially stalled on the charts, Team Kenny switched up their sound. Anticipating the celebratory flip to the year 2000, Kenny G produced a second version dubbed the Millennium Mix. The remix track featured an audio collage of sound bites of 20th century culture and history as Old Lang Syne's soft chords sauntered behind them. The final product is a very strange record. It is assuredly the highest charting single to quote both Austin Powers and Adolf Hitler. This very kitschy interpolation debuted on the Hot 100 just before Christmas of 1999, before pole vaulting a massive 47 slots over New Year's break. Though it tumbled off the chart in a short five-week run, its brief visit to number seven earned a handful of quirky chart feats. Firstly, it ended up being Kenny G's last major pop hit. The 1-0 actually wiped out by the Y2K bug. Smooth jazz was thankfully vanquished. So sad. Except for a glorious solo on Katy Perry's Last Friday Night, the shaggy-haired saxman never returned to the top 20 again. Not surprisingly, neither did the song's composer, Robert Burns. His 200-year-old corpse set the record for the oldest writer credited with a top 10 hit. He has yet to return. Fingers crossed there, Bobby. (laughs) The song's peak also marked the last instrumental top 10 of the 20th century, and the second to last ever until 2013's viral fad, Bowers' Harlem Shake. After setting all these records, the song was quickly forgotten. The clawing tribute only made sense in the two months it charted. Nowadays, it's little more than a curio. On Spotify, it's barely cracked a million streams. Other lower-charting Kenny G's tracks have racked up nearly 40 to 50 times that amount. Its pitiful sums make it one of the least streamed top 10 records of the 21st century. Yet, the song endures as a fascinating time capsule. Some of it has not aged that well. The only athlete chosen to represent the 1990s was not Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, or even Tony Hawk, but cheater Mark McGuire. Oops. Similarly, the transition from Oliver North's testimony on Iran-Contra to Oscar the Grouch is not particularly graceful. But the song works best as a game of spot the reference, an impressive reminder of just how much the world changed over the last century, and how much still lives with us. 
For instance, decades-old fictional characters referenced are still so famous that you don't even need to say their last names. Rocky and Bullwinkle, Lucy and Desi, Larry, Curly, and Moe, and of course, Neil. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That's right, this story has nothing to do with Old Lang Syne. Hello and welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is the New Year's baby, Nate Youngman. This week, we are looking at the truth behind outlandish conspiracy theories. As the first episode of the new year, this one is kind of a retread. We have talked about Neil Armstrong before in an earlier episode, when we discussed how his expedition to uncover ancient alien ruins in South America inadvertently derailed Donnie Osmond's career and paved the way for Rihanna's superstardom. What we did not mention at that time was that Neil Armstrong was a hit maker himself. Kenny G's Old Lang Syne is to date the highest charting single to incorporate audio of Armstrong's iconic first words on the moon. That is, if he actually said them. Conspiracy theorists have long maintained that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins' famed 1969 voyage to our nearest satellite was little more than a glorified PR stunt. Despite the huge amount of evidence, the dust and rock samples, the television footage, and the hundreds of thousands of people who made it happen, polls show as many as 6% of Americans still believe the Apollo 11 astronauts never landed on the moon. Surveys conducted closer to the actual mission put that number around 30%. The conventional narrative goes that NASA, desperate for a symbolic victory against the Soviets in the space race, and in a time crunch to meet the goal before President Kennedy's declared deadline of the decade's end, decided that it would just be easier and cheaper to stage the mission on a soundstage and pass the broadcast off as the real feed. To make the scam believable, they reached out to Stanley Kubrick to direct the operation. The man-man auteur had just won the only Oscar of his career for the special effects in the sci-fi brain scrambler 2001 A Space Odyssey. Despite being the most acclaimed film of the year, it was not even nominated for Best Picture. Instead, that statuette went to Oliver, a chipper musical retelling of Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens' morality tale of an orphan street urchin. Fun! Bit of a side note here, but though Kubrick lost to a musical, 2001 wound up to having the bigger musical legacy. None of Oliver's songs made the top 40, but Kubrick's movies inspired a few bonafide hits. Before jazz got smooth, it got funky. And there's nothing funkier than a 19th century German composer. In 1973, avant-garde ranger Emir Diodato took his Prague cover of Richard Strauss' 1896 classical composition Also Sprach Zarathustra to number two. Strauss's piece had been made famous a few years earlier in the opening theme to 2001. Although Diodato's hit had no direct connection to the film, the song's success would have been impossible without Kubrick seeding that melody into the public five years earlier. Stanley Kubrick's movies were not done inspiring hits. Two decades later, he had his greatest chart impact with a different kind of moon. Ladies, ladies, if you want to roll my Mercedes, turn around, stick it out. Even white boys got the shout, baby got back. Baby got back. Yeah, baby. Oh my God, Stanley. 
Look what you've done. 1992 is funny. The year grunge finally broke through on the mainstream, the most successful single by any Seattle act was Sir Mix-a-Lot's endearing tribute to thunderous posteriors, Baby Got Back. Buried among its avalanche of memorable hooks is a sample from Full Metal Jacket. We're not going to play it because it's a bit too racist, but if you know the song, you know what I'm talking about. The same line was referenced 13 years later on Fergie's similarly pro-booty anthem, London Bridge. While Kubrick's real achievements were topping the charts, his hypothetical ones failed to crack the top 40. Throw your diamonds in the sky if you feel the vibe. The rock is still alive every time I rhyme. Perhaps an early warning of his conspiratorial inclinations, Kanye West quoted Shirley Bassey on the first single of Late Registration. The number 43 hit, Diamonds from Sierra Leone, borrows much of its hook from Diamonds Are Forever, the theme to the James Bond movie of the same name. In an era where Bond songs were regularly chart Goliaths, Bassey's jazzy original never got past number 57. The movie includes a winking nod to the conspiracy theory that the moon landing was faked. Near the end, there is a cutaway gag where the debonair spy escapes from henchmen using a prop buggy from the soundstage where NASA pulled off the con. Somehow NASA could not get to the moon while Blowfield was able to install a giant laser fortress on it. While the movie rightfully reduces the theory to a punchline, the claim still has some true believers. One notable adherent is the rapper Mos Def. I wonder if this ever caused a rub between him and his fellow Black Star co-founder Talib Kweli Considering that the latter once duetted with Buzz Aldrin to celebrate the anniversary of the launch. All you need is the rocket experience. What you need is the rocket experience. All you need is the rocket experience. To go flying into Of course, this is all poppycock. We absolutely went to the moon. Even if we did fake it, notorious perfectionist Kubrick would probably just demand it that they shoot on location. In fact, it would have been cheaper to just actually visit the rock and then fake it. Cameras were so primitive in the 1960s that to get all the shadows to line up in the same way that they are in footage would have required building a giant tower of lasers, all pointed in the same location. It's easier when you already have a natural light source to do it, you know, like the sun. Buzz Aldrin, understandably annoyed at people trying to deny him of his greatest achievement, has been known to punch out conspiracy theorists. Weirdly, it was exactly because the astronauts were filming it that caused the mission's biggest headache. Armstrong kept getting his feet tangled up in the camera cables. The first trip to the moon led to the first trip on the moon. NASA did not fake Apollo 11. Come on, don't be absurd. That's ridiculous. They faked Apollo 12. Apollo 12 is an underrated mission. Stuck between one of humanity's greatest achievements in Apollo 11 and the gripping survival story of Apollo 13, it is easy to overlook. But it shouldn't be, because no mission ever packed more pranksters. Piloted by Pete Conrad, Alan Bean, and Richard Gordon, the mission started off with a rather inauspicious warning when their capsule got struck by lightning not once, but twice, something the old proverb told us would never happen. All the electronics got fried, and the crew had to coordinate using a sextant. Luckily, it was pretty easy to tell where they were going. All they had to do was look for the only object in the sky. 
Once they got there, Conrad was reportedly unimpressed. When asked what he thought about being the third man to ever set foot on the moon, he said, It's very light, gray like concrete. If I wanted to go out and look at something that looks like the moon, I'd go out and look at my driveway. That certainly would have been the cheaper option. While Armstrong's first words were so memorable that they could get sampled on a Kenny G song 30 years later, the highest honor there is. Conrad's were even better. The first thing he said when he touched down on the surface was, Whoopee! The 5'6 astronaut followed it up with, Man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that was a long one for me. Fantastic stuff. Big fan of that pecan. He's a funny guy. Things did not get any more serious when they started their work. When Alan Bean and Pete Conrad were on their lunar walk, they opened up a wristwatch-like device which contained a checklist for everything they needed to do. Each page was 3.5 inches square, laminated and bound like a book. While flipping through their checklist, they each discovered that someone had inserted pictures of Playboy Playmates into every other frame. So as they flipped through their booklet, they suddenly saw the nude Miss September, Angela Dorian, with the caption, Seen any interesting hills and valleys? This was not even the last naked drawing they dealt with. As part of the celebration of American creativity, NASA invited a few of the country's top artists to submit drawings to leave on the moon. Some of the commission's works were not particularly exciting. Robert Rauschenberg drew a straight line, and David Novros submitted a black square. Good stuff, guys. The most interesting contribution was by Andy Warhol. He doodled a stylized signature where the point of the A intersected with the humps of the W. Though it can be read as initials, it looks much more like a crude drawing of a penis. Again with the penises. Warhol pulled a fast one on the government. So if you are feeling down, just know that somewhere, Warhol's penis is always looking down at us. Mm, That's beautiful. That's very touching, though. The public did not get to see any of these hijinks. The camera that was supposed to broadcast our journey was accidentally pointed directly toward the sun. The light instantly burned out the lens. So as a result, they had no footage. The camera was apparently annoyed that it did not get its moment in the spotlight because when the crew splashed down to Earth, the impact jolted the camera out of place, landing on Alan Bean's head and knocking him unconscious. Well, actually, hit him on old Bean. Back on Earth, the TV channels scrambled to figure out what to do. They could play the audio, but they did not have any visuals to accompany it. The news stations had to get creative. CBS drew to a studio where they had set up two people dressed as astronauts pretend to walk around and mimic what they heard through the audio. NBC tried to pass off a couple of marionettes as the real thing. The puppeteer responsible for the marionettes was Bill Bard, who had achieved fame a few years earlier in the Lonely Goat Herd sequence in The Sound of Music. High on a hill was a lonely goat herd, lay, Loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd, lay, it's amazing that nobody recognized Bard's work. Spending a then-record-setting 109 weeks in the top 10, The Sound of Music was an absolute chart juggernaut. The soundtrack was so ubiquitous that in 2015, Billboard ranked it as the second most successful album of all time. Its singles were just as beloved. Ariana Grande interpolated my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. On her chart topper, Seven Rings. But Mr. Tiffany's in bottles of bubbles, girls with tattoos who like getting in trouble, lashes and diamonds, ATM machines, 
And Gwen Stefani resurrected Bard's Lonely Goatherd on her number six hit, Wind It Up. Bard never did get to work with Apollo 12 again. That makes sense. In space, nobody can hear you, Yodel. Uh-uh, don't touch that dial. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. Okay, good story, Dad. You know, big fan of space. Probably more so than Sound of Music. But let's stay in outer space for a little bit longer and thank the man who made the moon landings possible in the first place, Tycho Brahe, the father of modern astronomy. And Act 2, Something Wicked. From his Danish observatory, the 17th century astronomer Tycho Brahe charted the cosmos. His dad provided key insights into the motion of Mars, stars, and proved that the Earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. He successfully showed that the planets grind along in a cycle, yet the man who proved our universe's underlying order lived a life of chaos. Brahe lost his nose in a duel over another scientist's equations, got his pet elk so drunk it died falling down the stairs, and owned a psychic dwarf named Jep he kept as a jester under his dining room table. That was Jep, not Jeff. Yes. His eccentricities made him a subject of scorn to most of Denmark's nobility. Maybe even enough to kill him. In 1991, Brahe's corpse was exhumed. The body contained lethally high levels of mercury. Authors Joshua and Anne Lee Gilder posit in heavenly intrigue that the strong concentration suggested that Brahe was likely poisoned. Two candidates were put forward as possible suspects. First, Danish King Christian IV as payback against Brahe for allegedly having an affair with the king's mother. Second, Brahe's protégé and famed astronomer Johannes Kepler. Kepler started working as Brahe's assistant in the 1600. Brahe was highly protective of his observations and data and banned Kepler from consulting them for his work. Along with the many enemies the ill-mannered Brahe made, Kepler grew to resent Brahe and his secrecy. Suspiciously, after Brahe's sudden death, Kepler seized all the research that was closed off to him in Brahe's life. The research substantiated Kepler's hypothesis that the planets travel in elliptical orbit, a foundational discovery that overthrew centuries of earlier thought. If Brahe really was killed, it might have been all worth it. For his reputation's sake, Tycho Brahe probably wishes he was murdered. The accepted theory is that the pioneering astronomer died in 1601 from holding in his urine too long, at a banquet for the Holy Roman Emperor. Out of professional courtesy, Brahe refused to excuse himself in the Emperor's presence. Eleven days later, he died from a UNA tract infection. The man who gave us a scientific revolution died still trying to impress one more person. His legacy was more than secure. He should have just pinched a loaf anyways. One writer inspired by Brahe's rumored antics created his own tale of nobility, conspiracy, and intrigue. 400 years later, the tale was retold with a slight tweak of setting and species. Brahe lived a life of circles, and when it came time to tell his story, this is the song they opened with. That writer was William Shakespeare, 
whose play Hamlet served as a thematic template for both Disney's delightful 1994 Lion King and 2019's creatively bankrupt remake. Lion King is easily the highest grossing Shakespeare adaptation of all time. Its soundtrack was a near equal success. Selling 7 million copies, the album spun off two top 20 hits, the aforementioned Circle of Life and Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Elton John's highest charting 90s single until the mammoth success of Candle in the Wind. And can you feel the love tonight? It is where we are. Lion King is just one of the near endless adaptations to draw upon Shakespeare's catalog. Heck, the latest is playing at the local Cineplex as we record. Sydney Sweetie and Glenn Powell's steamy reimagining of Much Do About Nothing, Anyone But You. The two highlights of my short-lived thespian career were both Shakespeare plays. I was a soothsayer in my high school's production of Julius Caesar, and acclaimed in that role. And in the stage career, I was a curtain puller for Kiss Me Kate, Cole Porter's musical reworking of Taming of the Shrew. I'm sure old Billy would be proud. I played Julius Caesar in my high school, and you should have seen the line of people who signed up to join in on the stabbing scene. <laughs> His work is omnipresent. From the Hamlet line that Nick Lowe borrowed for the title of Cruel to be Kind. To Elvis's As You Like It inspired monologue in Are You Lonesome Tonight. You know someone said the world's a stage and each must play a part. Fate had me playing in love with you as my sweetheart. Through the extended snippet of King Lear that closes out the Beatles' Eye on the Walrus. Shakespeare words are firmly a part of the musical lexicon. Perhaps no one work has been more often alluded to than the tragic tale of Romeo and Juliet. From 50s torch ballad of Peggy Lee. Romeo loved Juliet, Juliet she felt the same When he put his arms around her, he said, Julie, baby, you're my flame, thou givest fever The 70s gloom rockers Blue Oyster Cult Romeo and Juliet are together in To a then unimperial, still countrified Taylor Swift. Each decade has had at least one top 20 hit where the singer sincerely compared themselves to their doomed star-crossed lovers. It's not a romantic play, really, so Blue Oyster Cult seemed to have been the only ones who read the play until the end. However, the surest route for a hit song is from the stage to screen. Broadway's West Side Story, which reimagined the feuding Montagues and Capulets as rival New York and Puerto Rican gangs, was a sensation. The 1961 film soundtrack's 54 weeks stay at number one, 
still holds a record for the longest time on top of any album in history, and produced one top ten hit, an easy listening piano cover of Tonight by Schlocky Duo Ferranti and Petra. Romeo and Juliet's less directly musical adaptations still noted huge hits. In a real changing of the guards moment, famed conductor Henry Mancini scored the only number one of his career with the Floyd orchestral piece, The Theme to Romeo and Juliet. The song he blocked at number two was Credence Clearwater Revival's apocalyptic opus, Bad Moon Rising. The soundtrack to Boz Lerman's gaudy 1996 adaptation went four times platinum and spun off the cardigan's absolutely perfect Love Fool. Because it was an album cut never officially released as a single, it failed to chart under Billboard's rules at the time. If it had been illegible, it likely would have gone all the way. Instead, the cardigans became the rare one-hit wonder who never had a hit in the first place. The similarly chart unlucky group Radiohead wrote a song for the movie's closing credits. The resulting song, the rather uncreatively titled Exit Music for a Film, inspired the band to get to work on the next album, the highly acclaimed OK Computer. Two thousands martial arts friendly retelling Romeo Must Die netted Aaliyah her soul number one, the bittersweetly triumphant Try Again. Aaliyah's R&B flavored track is the closest a rap affiliated artist has taken her Shakespeare reference on the charts. Despite the pronouncements of dope 8th grade teachers and backward chairs everywhere, William Shakespeare is not the first rapper. Yet many MCs have dropped bars about the bard, from Q-Tip to Tupac to Kendrick. Other attempts across Shakespeare of hip-hop have been unbearably lame, in a thing that should just not exist. William Shatner rapped Brutus's funeral soliloquy on 1998's No Tears Caesar. You all did see that on the looper call I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. Shakespeare's influence is still so powerful that four centuries later, he might have derailed one rapper's whole career. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. Denzel Macbeth loved it! I love the part where it said, King Lear don't got nothing on me. (laughs) 
This is not the moment you remember from the 94 for Academy Awards. When host Chris Rock congratulated Denzel Washington on his stand-up portrayal of the titular despot in The Tragedy of Macbeth, he said the lead character's name in a theater. That is a big no-no. A few minutes later, he found out why. Offended by a joke Rock cracked about his wife, Jada Pickett, Will Smith ran up on stage and slapped Rock in the face. The overblown incident went viral, stirring a whole mess of controversy. But one under-discussed facet of this much-discussed moment was that it might have been the latest example of a 400-year-old curse. According to Shakespeare lore, uttering Macbeth's name in a theater is an invitation for danger. While some actors believe the superstition, Macbeth's alleged curse was created whole cloth by 19th-century hoaxer Max Beerholm. Yet enough examples give the idea some legitimacy that even skeptical minds might believe. Disaster followed the play wherever it went. The results can range from the inconvenient to the tragic. Lawrence Delivier was injured in 1937 production. Charlton Heston suffered burns when he took on the role. And Diane Wynyard thought her portrayal of a sleepwalking Lady Macbeth would be more convincing if she kept her eyes closed during the scene. However, she walked off stage and fell into the orchestra pit. Four people died in a 1942 production. The set was then redesigned for a comedy, and the principal and that died too. After the cast endured being pelted with rotten eggs, potatoes, ripped up seats, and bottles of urine, an 1849 production abruptly ended when English and American nationalist theatergoers stormed the stage. The resulting chaos left 31 people dead, an event now known as the Astor Place Riot. By comparison, Chris Rock's five-finger punishment seems relatively tame. But Will Smith was an appropriate vessel to exact the curse again. He and Shakespeare have the same problem. Acting with a pen and pad, I compose this rhyme To hit you and to get you equipped for the summertime And with a pen and pad, I compose these rhymes. So says Will Smith in Summertime, the first top 10 hit for either the Fresh Prince or DJ Jazzy Jeff. Your namesake. Yeah. yeah. Jeff Pride, represented. Many people are not quite convinced that he's telling the truth. For years, Smith has been dogged with rumors that he uses Ghostwriter for much of his works. Such an accusation is a big deal in the rap community. Beefs have broken out over lesser things. Drake and Meek Mill went into a prologue Cold War, once Mill rightfully accused Drake of not writing all his lines. In fairness to Smith, he seems to be the actual mind behind his words. But many paint him as little more than a karaoke singer. Summertime was allegedly a Rakim track, and Smith's most successful record, the number one hit, Getting Jiggy With It. <laughs> Big Willie Styles already, getting jiggy with it. Getting jiggy with it. Was supposedly cribbed by Nas. While it's funny to imagine a gruff streetwise poet like Nas sitting down to write a woefully uncool goof off record like Getting Jiggy With It, the image is purely hypothetical. There is nothing to substantiate any of these rumors. The same goes for another W.S. who could borrow Will Smith's monogram towels, William Shakespeare. The theory that Shakespeare did not write all his plays stems from the 1857 publication of Delia Bacon's 625-page book, the philosophy of the plays of Shakespeare unfolded. The massive tome argued that the man we all know as Shakespeare was little more than a pen name for the play's true mastermind, scientist, and reformer of no relation, Francis Bacon. Since then, theorists have put forward a handful of other candidates, most frequently Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. 
Now, there's one big problem with that idea. Edward de Vere was dead for years, while Shakespeare was still cranking up plays. Supporters have gone around that hurdle by suggesting that after de Vere died, he left unfinished manuscripts for his servant Shakespeare to distribute later. Presumably with missing lines saying, insert topical gag here. <laughs> At least the timeline works for Francis Bacon. Bacon died ten years after the real Shakespeare passed on, succumbing to pneumonia he contracted after conducting a scientific experiment. The question he tried to solve... How long does snow last stuffed inside a chicken carcass? Some questions mankind was just never meant to know. Delia Bacon's book was an immediate sensation on release, finding much currency with the American elite. Mark Twain praised it, Nathaniel Hawthorne asked to write the foreword, and later luminaries like Helen Keller, Walt Whitman, and Charlie Chaplin all cited text in agreement. Delia Bacon was an atypical trendsetter. Clinically insane, Bacon spent the last years of her life in an asylum, convinced that she was the physical incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Still, her ideas became so commonplace that even contemporary proponents like Malcolm X, Anne Rice, Robin Williams, and Mark Rylance still spelt them in agreement. People have gone to great lengths to prove her right. The Supreme Court stated a show trial that finally put the matter to rest. Justice John Paul Stevens left with reasonable doubt over the play's authorship. George Fabian assembled a crack team of cryptanalysis to decipher passages in Shakespeare's works for any clues to his true identity. They never got to the bottom of the stated goal, but the mission was not a total failure. The crew he brought together, Elizabeth Smith and William Freeman, went on to crack thousands of codes and ciphers during World War I and World War II. Their work uncovered a Nazi spy wing operating out of America and helped put the notorious gangster Al Capone behind bars. As some schlub once said, All's well that ends well. Almost no professional scholar takes the skeptic seriously. There are few Elizabethan figures that historians are more about than Shakespeare. Nothing in the first hound accounts of his life suggests anything other than the simple fact that the guy with his name on the front of the plays was the guy who wrote them. It's not much more complicated than that. And if somehow the whole collective historical record is wrong, uh, who cares? If Shakespeare's just the name, we give the guy who wrote the words. Good job. He, he, did, he nailed it. Those are good words. I find the theory patently offensive. This whole notion stinks of classism. Adherents have an easier time ignoring legitimate evidence and bending the space-time continuum than believing the simple truth that a poor country boy with only basic education became a greater writer than all the richer and better educated nobles around him. The idea that you can come from nowhere and write words so moving that people will still love and study and invent conspiracies theories over them 400 years later it's far more compelling to me than if it turns out it was just some other dude. As much as I hate the conspiracy, it does get one thing right. There really is a play credited to Shakespeare that we know he had a ghostwriter for, mostly because he was the ghost. 200 years after he died, Shakespeare composed one last piece. Its impact on literary history rivals the best of his works. In 1853, Victor Hugo fled France following the issuing of a warrant for his arrest by Napoleon III. Hugo was exiled largely thanks to a pamphlet he wrote critical of the emperor. After arriving in Jersey, Hugo met a woman named Delphine Giraudin, who introduced him to the world of table turning. Turning is a method of seance where a wobbly three-legged table communicates by tapping letters out on the floor. One tap for A and 26 taps, you get the idea, for Z. Though skeptical at first, Hugo quickly converted. Over the next two years, he spoke to spirits, allegedly 
ranging from the biblical Abel, Alexander the Great, Dante, Galileo, Jesus Christ, Joan of Arc, Moses, Socrates, Voltaire, Sir Walter Scott, and strangers of all, a resident of the planet Jupiter called Tatafia. He also spoke to abstract concepts like civilization, death, the finger of death, happiness, inspiration, the ocean, the dove of Noah's Ark, Russia, and the sea wind. All right, man. (laughs) He had near sitcom-level antics with his paranormal companions. A headless ghost kept snooping on his papers, holding the decapitated skull over his work. Cleopatra gossiped that she had been reincarnated as a worm. He watched Mozart compose a concerto by pinning the table's legs on top of a piano. He channeled the spirit of a comet to help it draw a picture of itself. Um, How hard could that have been? Its shape is a circle. Yeah, that's where he lost me. (laughs) However, his most fruitful collaboration was with William Shakespeare. Closely editing each line, Shakespeare dictated a whole comedy to Hugo, letter by letter. Fortunately, all in French, because as Shakespeare grew to learn in death, the English language is inferior to French. Remarkably, the Shakespeare collaboration has yet to be performed until right now. In an ohm first, here is the opening passage. Act 1. A starry sky, serene night. The stars are twinkling. Their twinkling murmurs mysterious words. Suddenly, two of the stars begin to expand in a strange manner and become enormous, as if audiences' opera glasses had been changed into magic telescopes. Bravo! 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 Hugo rejected his daily answers with spiritualism after he developed a bit of a crush on one ghost, and turns out, Hugo likes the bad girls. The object of his affection was a prehistoric druid, who had murdered her child. Yeah, yeah, that's a deal breaker, ladies. While his encounters with the spiritual realm may have ended in disaster, we have a lot to be thankful for it. It was one night while Hugo summoned the spirit of civilization that he expressed his frustrations about writing his latest novel. He considered abandoning the project, but civilization urged him to press on. Hugo agreed. Without that conversation, Hugo likely would have never finished what would eventually go on to be considered his masterpiece. Les Miserables. You heard of this? You seen this? Less Miserables is a pretty big thing. Check it out. If you don't know it, I'm sure you can find a ticket. It's the longest running musical in the West End and the sixth longest running show on Broadway. The Lion King by Hugo's old writing buddy is a third, by the way. Multiple Les Miserables cast recordings have fared well on the charts. In 2012, the soundtrack to the movie adaptation topped the Billboard 200. In a weird cosmic coincidence, the movie's highest charting single was by a woman with the same name as Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway. Her teary-eyed rendition of I Dreamed a Dream went to number 69. It was not the first time that song had cracked the Hot 100. I dreamed a dream in time gone by When hope was high and life worth living Three years earlier, in 2009, frumpy housewife Susan Boyle went viral thanks to her steering audition of the show tune on Britain's Got Talent. 
Her album, I Dreamed a Dream, moved enough copies as a quintessential mom gift of 2009 that in only six weeks it winded up as a best-selling album of 2010. The title single was a bit of a smaller blockbuster, stalling out at number 62. Yet Boyle still took Les Miserables higher on the Hot 100 than anyone before or since. She lived the dream. That lady got a set of pipes on her. I don't expect anyone to top Boyle's lightning in a bottle sensation anytime soon. But I fully expect to hear Les Miserables music for a while. You can hear the people sing, and they certainly don't seem to be shutting up. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, Nate, you doth sayeth a good story. Instead of Nate, I'm going to close this out with one last story. Our previous two acts used the phrase conspiracy theory as shorthand for any controversial idea that Buck's accepted history. Strictly speaking, that is not what a conspiracy is. Conspiracy is just any time two or more people come together to do something. While both faking the moon landing or misattributing Shakespeare plays to a hidden actor would count, the term encompasses much more. Surprise parties are a conspiracy. Pie-eating contests are also a conspiracy. You may be in a conspiracy right now. But in everyday parlance, the term almost exclusively refers to the secretive plots of shadowy government officials. That's not a theory. That's just called politics. But there are events worthy of the menacing connotation. Events so shocking that they require an equally shocking cause. It is not just something that happened. It cannot be just one of those things. There has to be more. And in the paranoid years of the Cold War, no two events were more worthy of this moniker than the alleged conspiracy to kill President John F. Kennedy and the confirmed conspiracy to bug the Democratic National Convention headquarters in Watergate. Kennedy and Nixon, two bitter rivals for the presidency in 1960, eventually both went on to hold the office, but neither got the chance to complete their terms. Only Nixon witnessed the moment both of them collapsed. In a head-tilting coincidence, Three future presidents were in Dallas the day Kennedy was shot. Then Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson rode behind in Kennedy's motorcade. Richard Nixon was attending a Pepsi shareholder conference in town. And in a stretch of credulity, George H.W. Bush somehow was the only person in America who could not remember what he was doing that day, even though he was there. Future Twister star Bill Paxton and Brian Hyland, the itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka-dot bikini guy, were also in the crowd but I doubt they were involved in any cover-up. Also in attendance via radio waves was the man who eventually brought Dixon down. But now there's no leaving you. I know that for a fact. I'm at the point of no return. And for me there'll be no turning back. If Nixon had tuned into Dallas's KLF that day, he might have heard Gene McDaniels. The station happened to be playing the soul singers The Point of No Return just before Kennedy turned into Dealey Plaza. 
The now oddly fitting tune was one of the handful of hits for the soul stomper in the pre-Beatles 1960s. In 1961, McDaniel reached a career peak at number three with 100 Pounds of Clay, a retelling of the Genesis creation story from Adam's perspective. It's hard to imagine anything like that topping our charts again anytime soon. Then he rolled his big sleeves up And a brand new world began He created a woman And a lots of loving for a man Whoa, yes he did As music and society changed in the wake of Kennedy's assassination, McDaniels became increasingly radicalized. The prim and proper numbers he could once rely on sounded increasingly passé and out of step with the era's political reality. In 1966, he drastically switched up his style. The new direction netted his most acclaimed record to date. Looks like we always end up in a rut Everybody now trying to make it real compared to what Compared to what? A great song. A rare political rallying cry to pick battles against the Vietnam War, racial unrest, and an old woman kissing a dog. Recorded by more than 250 artists, the song has emerged as a jazz standard, particularly after Eddie Harris and Les McCain's fiery performance at the 1969 Montreux Jazz Festival. That same year, Roberta Flack cut the track for her debut album, First Take. But a different single off that album turned Flack into a household name. The first As we discussed in depth in a previous show, the first time ever I saw your face owes much of its success to Clint Eastwood. A fluke needle drop in Eastwood's directorial debut, Play Misty for Me, instantly popularized the then two-year-old record. Its six-week stay at number one made it the best-selling record of 1972. The song was so immediately ubiquitous that Apollo 17's astronauts chose it as the last song ever played on the moon. That is, assuming we even went to the moon in the first place. Sales from the blockbuster single propelled First Take up the charts. By April 1972, Flack became the first black female soloist with a number one album. The royalties off Flack's unexpected smash gave McDaniels a convenient cushion during the most challenging moment of his career. Left wing and right wing Political pawns in the master game The player who controls the board sees them all as the same Basically, cannon fodder McDaniel's 1971 bugged-out psychedelic jazz funk album Headless Heroes of the Apocalypse offers a fire and brimstone vision in which God's justice is soon at hand Social ills from war to racism to getting the wrong vegetables at the grocery store may be all it takes to finally convince the Lord to smite us all. Though initial sales were poor, McDaniel's astrological ambitions found a belated audience as a perennial favorite for sample-seeking rap producers. Its early failure had nothing to do with the quality of the songs, a very good album, I might say, and all to do with the crooks in the White House. In 1972, agents of the Nixon administration, offended by McDaniel's impassioned rhetoric, pressured Atlantic Records to drop him from their label and stop promoting the album. Without professional backing, 
McDaniel's opportunities dried up. The White House had won the battle. While not exactly the biggest name on the soul circuit, McDaniels had spoken out against the administration. He had to be punished. It was the exact breed of hubris, that vindictive bully mindset, that type of indestructible nobody-can-touch-me bravado that caused Nixon's downfall. Well, that and a whole lot of dumb luck. There's a case to be made that 1958's Attack of the Puppet People is the most influential film you've never heard of or wanted to see. I watched it in preparation for this episode. Um, feel free to check it out if you've seen every other movie ever made first. In this schlocky sci-fi B-movie, a mad scientist shrinks people down the size of dolls. He collects his tiny victims in glass tubes as companions after his wife left him for a circus acrobat. In the end, his collection rises up and overthrows their maniacal leader. Strange little movie that neither has an attack or puppet people. Despite the false advertisement, the moral is clear. Anyone can change the world no matter how small. Alfred Baldwin did not need a movie to teach him that lesson. He would soon learn it firsthand, all because he could not keep his eyes off the TV. On June 17, 1972, Baldwin had a simple job. Pay attention. Baldwin was supposed to stand watch and call the Watergate burglars if he saw anything suspicious. As anyone who's ever worked a boring job knows, it's much more fun to watch TV instead. Baldwin, too caught up in the attack of the puppet people, failed to notice when an unmarked police car pulled into the complex. Frank Wills, a high school dropout working the graveyard shift as a hotel security guard, phoned the police about a potential break-in after spotting a piece of tape covering the lock on a door. The dispatcher called the officer assigned to Watergate to check out the disturbance. By the time he was called to make the round, he was busy taking a few different rounds of his own. According to the historian Craig Shirley, the officer that was supposed to show up that night had spent the first two hours of his shift drinking bourbons and coke. He could barely walk, let alone investigate a break-in, so he made up a story about being out of gas and asked if anyone else on the force could check it out for him. Undercover cop Paul Leeper said he could stop on his way home from work. Leeper, the head of the so-called bum squad, patrolled Georgetown streets dressed as a hippie in an unmarked Ford sedan designed to blend in. Baldwin spotted Leeper's funky beat-up cruiser parked in front of the Watergate, but did not give the car a second glance and went back to his movie. And so Leeper and two other officers entered the building and proceeded to make one of the biggest arrests in American history that eventually brought down a president. It's interesting to think what might have happened if that first cop showed up when he was supposed to. Who knows? Maybe if Baldwin had spotted a uniformed officer flashing his red lights, he could have given his conspirators a warning in time to avoid being caught. Dixon's dirty tricks might have caught up with him anyway, but it's great that he got caught when he did, because, thanks to a remarkable coincidence and timing, Nixon suffered one more ignobility and defeat. The White House attempts to destroy McDaniel's career did not finish the job. While nowhere near the star he once was, McDaniel's retreated to the sidelines as a songwriter for hire. In 1974, Roberta Flack covered McDaniel's not-too-subtle composition, Feel Like Making Love. Flack, at the height of her popularity, turned the song into an immediate smash. By August 3rd, the song reached number three, tying McDaniel's own previous chart peak. And then, one week later, it did even better. On August 10th, 1974, one day after Nixon resigned, 
McDaniels had credit on the number one song in the country. With help from Flack, he had gotten his payback. Conspiracies always need two people. All right, that's our show. There is something beautiful in Gene McDaniels' late career bounce back, but we've given him enough praise so far in this section. Instead, to close out, we're going to pay tribute to one of McDaniels' celebrated collaborators, jazz great Les McCann. Though he died in the closing days of 2023, the news did not break until January 1st, 2024. He did not get in one last old Lang Syne. So here's some of the great Les McCann. Thanks for listening. Parting is such sweet sorrow. <laughs>